You are listening to the Impact Church Podcast. To learn more about Impact Church, visit us online at impactharlem.org. You can also check us out on social media. All right, good morning, Impact. Man, worship was just amazing this morning. I feel like the last time I preached, we ended with that song, Andrew, and I think he does it on purpose. I'm not complaining. I love it. It pumps me up. I can feel God's presence in here. I can feel the Holy Spirit. And as a pastor, there's there's nothing more true when you stand up in front of a, a group of, of believers to preach God's Word uh, and to just acknowledge the fact that you're not enough. We don't come up here and, and preach what we think we should do. We don't come up here and, and preach our own doctrines and our own theologies. We stand up here and we preach the Word of God. And so we expect the Lord to show up and we expect the Holy Spirit to guide us uh, into all truth and to speak truth to you this morning. So we are continuing our series called Asking for a Friend. And so as we remember, asking for a friend means what? It's those, those tough questions that we tend to ask. And right when the question is finished being asked, we append the words asking for a friend. And if we're honest this morning and, you know, we apply a degree of introspection, we know what that means. We're really asking for ourselves. And even if we're not, if we're truly asking for a friend, a lot of these tough questions are things that we want to know the answer to as well. There are things that we're wrestling with, doubts that we have, and so we ask the question and say, asking for a friend. And so last week, we covered a really difficult question. Uh, it's asked of the church all the time. If you've been a believer for more than five minutes, I'm sure somebody asks you, uh, if God is so loving, why is there pain? Why is there suffering? Why is there evil in the world? And Pastor Dustin began to unpack the origin and the source of pain and suffering. And what we quickly realized last week is that God is the author of only things that are good, that God is not the author of evil and suffering, and it is that through sin and the corruption of this world and our natural rebellion against what God's created that causes pain and suffering. And in His sovereignty, God allows things to pass through His hands because only a Creator God, only God Almighty can paint a beautiful picture out of something so dark and so terrible. And we were left with nothing but hope that even the most terrible thing that ever happened when God's Son came to this world, He lived, He preached a ministry, He was wrongly accused, beaten and broken and hung on the cross for your sins and mine and was resurrected on the third day. God turned the most terrible thing in human history into the most beautiful thing in all eternity. So this morning we're going to pivot to the next tough question. And it's a question that we must answer as a church, as believers. And that question is, you'll see it on the screens, can I trust Scripture. Can I trust Scripture? So, why is there um, this tough question? Why does this question matter? And the thing is, is we're living in a difficult time. You heard Sally as she prayed, she talked about this, this time of uncertainty, this time of so much chaos when we're not sure what tomorrow is going to look like. And so, when we ask this question, can I trust Scripture, what we're really asking if we think hard about it is can I trust God? Can I trust God 
to do the things that He says? Can I trust God to love me? To truly be there for me in the most difficult times of my life? Is He strong enough? Is He capable? And so that's the question today is, can I trust God? And you see, the the Bible, right, for the Christian is the very Word of God. It's the very Word of God. And it tells the greatest story. It tells God's story. It talks about the creation. It also talks about the fall. It talks about our redemption. And it ends with our restoration and the restoration of the creation. There's no doubt that today, truth, morality, and authority are under attack. They're under attack. Truth no longer means anything that's absolute. We're told that there are no absolutes. We are told that whatever you feel, whatever whim or thing that you want to do is okay. That is truth for you. So postmodernism and relativism are eating away at the human race. And we're creating our own false gods. We're creating our own doctrines, our own theologies. The internet is but a click away. Pull out your smartphone. Pull up your computer. You can find support for any worldview or any belief you have to make yourself feel better. But it's only in God's Word do we get the answers for the big questions in life. They not only answer the big questions in life, but they answer the toughest questions that your children probably ask you at some point in their life. Who am I? Why am I here? Do I have a purpose? And if you're honest with yourselves this morning, you know that you've asked these questions too. They're difficult questions. And because of sin, we know the corruption factor. We know how rebellious we become if we're left to our own devices. If we get to decide what is right and what is wrong, Well, just look around you. Look at America and look at the world. And that is the result when mankind decides what is true and what is not. When they decide what is good and what is wrong. And so this morning, God's Word has all of the answers. And in it, it tells the extent of His love. Sending His Son to die for our sins. But it claims something that the world cannot stand. It claims to be objective. It claims to be absolute truth. It tells us about our dilemma. It explains why evil's in the world. It explains why we are the way we are. If we're wrestling with a sin and we can't seem to get rid of, it explains that. It, it tells us exactly why we have that problem. But God doesn't leave us without hope because in His very Word, He tells us the solution in His Son, Jesus Christ. God's Word has all the answers, and therefore it is the largest target of attack. It is the first thing that others want to turn down. For you see, for the ruler of this world, He has blinded many. And if He can convince us that God's Word is not true, if He can get us to doubt the Bible, then He has achieved His supreme goal. He has achieved the goal of making sure that we never trust God. And if we can never trust God, then Jesus isn't real, 
Jesus didn't die on the cross. Our faith is in vain, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And Christians are to be pitied greater than anyone else because we have believed a lie. And so when we come at the question of can I trust Scripture this morning, I think we start with making sure we all understand what the word trust means. And so if you look at the screens this morning, trust is defined as the assured reliance on the character, the ability, the strength, or truth of someone or something. And so once again, if this is the word of God, and the question is, can I trust the Word of God? Can I trust Scripture? What we're really asking is, can I trust God? You've heard Pastor Dustin, Pastor Andrew, and myself preach on several occasions that here at Impact, it's extremely important as a leadership team that we preach sound doctrine and theology to everyone who worships here. If we fail to preach uh, sound doctrine and theology, then we go about our Christian lives believing a lie and living in a way that doesn't align to Scripture, that puts us in a place where we're being disobedient to the Word of God, and we don't actually draw any closer to Jesus because we have this twisted viewpoint of how we should live. And so sound doctrine is important. And while there are multitudes of doctrines that we'll talk about, when we're answering the question, can I trust Scripture, we're really unpacking uh, the doctrine of the Word of God. And the doctrine of the Word of God can go in many different directions. We could spend time uh, this morning talking about the canon, right? Which books are included in the Bible, okay? Uh, we could talk about uh, the various attributes of Scripture, about its authority, about its necessity, about its clarity, about its sufficiency. Um, we could honestly stay here all day, but I'm sure some of y'all will get hungry before lunchtime gets here, so I won't do that to you this morning. But if the question comes down to trust, we need only focus on determining that this is, in fact, the Word of God. Because if this is the Word of God, then the believer, the unbeliever, when reading it, has come face to face with the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Almighty God, the Creator of all we know. We're looking face to face with God. Now, I do want to make it something very clear. Uh, when you think of the Word of God in the Bible, it can definitely mean a, a few different things. So when we say the Word of God, we very well could be referring to the living embodiment of the Word, which is Jesus Christ, right? So the personhood uh, uh, of the Word of God. There are also the various decrees. So when we read the word, thus saith the Lord, and these things throughout the Bible, we have uh, that word. We have the personal addresses where God is speaking uh, also through human lips with the prophets and bringing that word to us. And then finally, we're left with the written word. And so I want you to understand that our focus this morning of answering the question, can I trust Scripture, comes down to the written word of God. And so we're going to look at a couple of points this morning. The first one is this, the inspiration of Scripture. The inspiration of Scripture. So hopefully I've been delicate in my explanation of what I hold in my hands because for many, they would have you believe that this is simply another book. This is simply another failed attempt of human minds and effort 
to reason and explain away all our doubts and fears, to give us some sense of hope so that everything around us doesn't seem like it's caving in. But that's not the case here this morning. And it doesn't matter if you're a believer or an unbeliever because this is not just another book. It's the Word of God. So if you're resisting Him this morning, or if you even would ultimately reject Him, it changes nothing, for this is not just a book. It's the Word of God. If we look at Scripture this morning at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, it reads, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All Scripture. And so throughout church history, what we need to understand is that this, this doctrine of inerrancy, this attribute of the Word, that it's... No, I'm sorry, not inerrancy, inspiration. Um, this was something that would not have been in question. They knew that they had the Word of God. So from, from the decrees to what the prophets said, they knew that God was the source of divine inspiration. But there's something else to see here when we look at the words breath of God we're also looking at this creative force, right? If we look in the account in Genesis, it said what, right? That God breathed the breath of life into man, right? When he made Adam. So God's breath has a creative force. And that creative force, right, produces his word that we have here today. If we also take another look at 2 Peter chapter 1, and we have several verses to cover, 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through human, though human, spoke from God as they carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we see the Holy Spirit's work in the divine inspiration of God's Word. And so many people would tell you that the Bible was written by human hands. And luckily for them this morning, they would be correct. Human hands, from cover to cover, penned the words that we have in the Bible but they're failing to account for divine inspiration. And so we have to make sure we understand this morning, notice I said writer. I did not say author, okay? God is the author of His Word, amen? God is the author of His Word. And through the power of His Holy Spirit, God directed and guided human hands to write His Word. So, take this away this morning. Write it down if you're taking notes. God's Word has one author who is God. 
but it has many writers. And for me as a Christian, only God could do something so beautiful where His Holy Spirit could guide and direct fallible human beings, people who are full of error and rebelliousness like us, and still include our own theological perspectives, our own writing styles, our own way of explaining things, still allow that human element to, to, to hit the paper, but still ensure that everything he was trying to communicate with us was recorded clearly and efficiently for us today. Only God could do that. And it's Old Testament and new, right? The, many critics would, would see that scripture of, all Scripture is God-breathed. And they would point out to you that if we look at the, the Greek word being used, uh, that it was referring to the Old Testament. And that would be true, but from a theological standpoint, the church with confidence can apply it broadly. And the reason for that has everything to do with what Jesus said. So if nothing I've said up to this point uh, helps you believe that this, this Bible, the Word of God, is divinely inspired, uh, let me tell you what our Savior, Jesus Christ, said. Jesus Christ promised... Uh, that the Holy Spirit would guide the apostles and everything they said and did after he left, right? And so if Jesus said that that was the case, then we know that God's guidance and direction in those writings never ceased. Those men were still led by the Holy Spirit and everything they taught and everything they wrote, Okay. Paul was confident when he preached to the different churches and he wrote his, his epistles. He was confident that the Holy Spirit was guiding him in what he said and did. He was very clear about that. Peter would later reference him. If we look later on in the Bible, Peter even will reference the other scriptures. He'll talk about Paul's writings. And so we need to understand this morning uh, that both the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, are God-breathed. It's, it's end-to-end, cover-to-cover. This is God's Word. When Jesus was here in His earthly ministry... He often quoted from Scripture. He said that the Scripture, the Old Testament law, would not be abolished, right? He came to fulfill it. He did not come to get rid of it. So we have God's Word here today. We can be confident that this is the product of divine inspiration. And once we understand that the Bible is a product of divine inspiration, it's important for us to understand the inerrancy of Scripture. The inerrancy of Scripture. So what does inerrancy actually mean? It honestly just means that Scripture will never affirm anything contrary to reality, to facts, the way things are. Okay, It always tells the truth. And we saw the definition of trust this morning. We know that when we're digging into this, this word trust and can I trust God, can I trust the Scriptures, we're, we're really getting at the heart of is it telling the truth? Is God truthful? I like the way that uh, Paul Feinberg, he was an American theologian at the Moody Bible Institute and later went on to teach at Trinity College. If you look here at the screen, I've, I've placed it up here for you to read as well. It says, Inerrancy means that when all facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm. Whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with the social, physical, or life sciences. So the doctrine of inerrancy, right, means that God's word is true. You see this, this definition of original autographs, and what we're really talking about here 
are the original uh, manuscripts, right, as they were recorded. And so I'm, I believe by now most of us know that we no longer have the original manuscripts uh, the way that they would have been recorded. Those materials would not last a very long time. And so throughout the years, scribes and copyists had to continue to make copies of the word. And the largest attack against what we have here in front of us today is that in that process, there's nothing but errors, right? That copyists wrote down what they wanted to be there. Uh, they wanted to control people. Uh, but when we, when we look um, back through history and we look at the work of those scholars and those scribes, this, it's just not true, right? The, the fact of the matter is that while there were definitely a few transcribing errors, right, and we also have the language barrier that we have to account for as well, um, conservative scholars and even most liberal scholars will tell you that 99% of what we have today is exactly what was in the original manuscripts. And so even if you want to argue for 1% as it relates to inerrancy, that, that 1% are insignificant words that just honestly don't bleed over well to the English language or any other language. And they do not affect any of the essential doctrines or beliefs that we hold as Christians. That's the truth of the matter. Do the research for yourself. Um, it also likes to attack, right? I said that through divine inspiration, the Holy Spirit made sure that what God wanted to communicate was recorded, but he also allowed uh, these, these writers to have their own st writing styles, to have their own perspectives and things like that. So we get God's communication, but in human words. And so some of the um, writing conventions that will get attacked, right, as it relates to inerrancy, uh, is like something like the ordinary speech. So if we look at the Old Testament where Moses talks about the two great lights, science would tell you today, well, the moon doesn't shine, the moon just reflects light. But that doesn't really affect inerrancy because it's just ordinary language, right? Do we not say here on earth from our perspective that the sun rises and sets, right? But from a scientific point of view, were we trying to be scientific in our statement? No, because from our perspective, the sun indeed rises and the sun indeed sets. But we know that the earth goes around the sun, right? This, this, we're, we're not claiming a scientific fact and scripture is not trying to do that either. So that falls apart. Quotations are another thing, right? We live in a time, if anyone's ever written a college paper, you've you know, come up against this whole thing with plagiarism. And so if you're quoting somebody else, you have either a method of direct quotation where you're writing in double quotes exactly what uh, that person said, or if you're paraphrasing, you're having to put a citation to say, this is what you know this person was getting at. That's all the Bible's ever done. And throughout... Um, ancient history, they thought the same way. Like they weren't expecting to hear every word exactly as it was uttered. They expected that they would be told exactly what that person meant in the message that they were trying to convey. So that's another fallacy and another failed attempt to try to break down the concept of biblical inerrancy. And there's also the parallel accounts. How many of you, just by a show of hands, uh, have ever been told that the, 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 the four gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the story different, and so therefore they can't be true. Has anyone ever heard that before? This doesn't work, right? And this is why this doesn't work. Um, if you look at 
uh, different folks. There's a guy, he was a, a cold case detective. He would tell you that when he became a Christian and he started to dig into the Word of God, when they bring people in who witness a crime or some terrible thing, they get these eyewitness testimonies, right? And what they like to do is separate the witnesses, okay? And they try to see if they're, um, you know, telling the story, right? If they're fabricating a lie. And what you actually find is that if across a bunch of witnesses, if their story lines up detail for detail exactly the same, almost like it was a scripted or rehearsed, then police officers will tell you, detectives will tell you that they think that this is a fabricated lie. So it's actually more natural when you pull people in who have looked at something or witnessed something, they'll tell you pretty much the same details, but they're going to tell you in their own way because all of us have a different perspective, right? We have a different perspective. If I all told you to close your eyes right now and then gave you each an opportunity one at a time to tell me without opening your eyes back up which objects were up here behind me, I guarantee I would get a a, a varied list of results. But probably by the time we were done, we would get most of what is back here. Can we agree on that this morning? So this parallel account problem doesn't work either for attacking the doctrine of inerrancy. So you can feel confident that that doesn't work either. There's also the matter of the word infallibility. You've probably heard that God's word is inerrant, meaning it's truthful. But there's also this word infallibility. And this just means that God's word is not liable to fail. It will do exactly what it set out to accomplish, exactly what it intends. If we look this morning at Isaiah Chapter 55 and verse 11, it says, So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Other translations, my favorite, favorite one is honestly New King James. It says, It will not return to me void. It will not return to me void. God is being clear in the scripture in Isaiah that his word will do exactly what he intends it to do. And honestly, when somebody comes up to you as it relates to the truthfulness of God's word and they try to point out errors, just hand them the Bible and and ask them to show you where the errors are. And this isn't a trick. This is just me being honest that a lot of us are parents, right? I know your kids are parents and they repeat what they hear, but even as adults, we're parents. We hear somebody say the Bible's full of errors. So the first time we have a conversation with a Christian, we tell them that the Bible's full of errors. But we don't know what the errors are. We don't know where they are, and they probably couldn't tell you. But if they do tell you, that's fine. With confidence, sit down, read the Word, study it. If you're still not sure by the plain writing of the Word, dig into a commentary, dig into other sources, and you can quickly confirm what is going on and help explain that to that person. And honestly, if I were to just put a pin in this and in this once and for all, for me as a Christian whose Lord and Savior is Jesus Christ, I'll just go with what Jesus said. Let's look at John 17, 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Did you catch that? If you didn't, I, I, I made it bold and I underlined the word that I want you to pay attention to. If Dustin told me something and I was explaining it to Ross later, for instance, and, uh, and I wanted to tell him that the thing that Dustin told me uh, was truthful, how would I say that? I would say, yeah, what Dustin said is true. Can we agree? That's what I would say. That would be the correct choice of word. But Jesus didn't say that here. Jesus said your word is truth. It's just like John 14, 6. Jesus said what? I am the way 
the truth, and the life. So God's Word is not just inerrant in the fact that it's true and everything that it says and attempts to communicate to us, but it is truth. It is absolute, objective truth. And so once we understand the divine inspiration of Scripture, once we understand the inerrancy of Scripture, we can finally move to clarifying this this morning. We can look at the authority of Scripture. So if we come to the conclusion that God is the divine author of His Word, He's God. We're no longer speculating on, on what ifs and is there really a God and can I trust Scripture? Like if we can walk away and believe that this is divinely inspired, if we know that God cannot lie and that this Word is truthful, I mean, God is so close to His Word and we're, we're hearing the very words of God. We're hearing exactly what He intended to communicate. And so I put a little illustration on the screen this morning to help you with this. If he's the divine author, then his word has what? Divine authority. Divine author equals divine authority. It means that Scripture has the right, because they are the very words of God, to demand our obedience to tell us as Christians, those who have put their faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, to tell us how to live, who we should be, what we should aspire to become, which is more like Christ. And it also has the right to prohibit what we shouldn't do, what we shouldn't become. And this this concept that that this book alone, right, it self-attests. Like everything I gave you this morning was straight from Scripture. And many would tell you, well, there you go. That the pastor has committed a logical fallacy. It's a circular argument, right? Let me, let me break that down for you. As it relates to authority, and, and, and at that point, an objective authority, an absolute authority, all absolutes suffer from the problem of a circular argument. Let me explain. As a Christian, I believe God created the world, right? But some atheists would tell you, okay, well, if God created the universe, right, then who created God? And so it's a circular argument, right? But those same people, right, who believe in something different, like the universe just popped into existence, you can just use that same argument because they're arguing an absolute as well. The universe just popped into existence. So they say, the universe created me, so I could say, cool, who created the universe? Do you see what I did there? So when we're trying to say there's nothing higher in authority, that's what we're saying in God's Word. I'm not going to put this to, to logic, to, to human uh, condition, to reasoning. It, it's fine to reason. It's fine to dig in. And there's so many great arguments and historical evidence and, ar- and archaeology and all these different things that help you gain confidence in this. But at the end of the day, what God says about His own Word is an, should be enough for all of us. It should be enough. It's exactly what I would expect the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the one and only God who has all power and authority. It's exactly what I expect him to say. It's what he said to Moses. Who should I tell? You know, what should I tell the Israelites? Who, who, you know, who sent me? I am who I am. There is nothing else. It's me, Yahweh, right? I am God. And this was a major issue during the Reformation, right? This is, you know, where we're switching to Protestantism. And it's because they wanted to insert the traditions. They wanted to insert the human authority rather than just stick with Scripture. That this is our authority. This is God's 
written communication. This was a major issue in the early church. I just want you to understand that this morning. So if you ever wondered maybe some of the differences there, it's that appeal to a higher authority. For uh, Baptists, we're Southern Baptist Church, this is it for us. This is the authority, God himself, God's word, nothing else, nothing else. Now, we can try to affirm all day long this concept of biblical authority. But as a church, can I be honest with you? I can stand up here all day and preach doctrine and theology and talk about God's word. But if I fail as a Christian to live this, it doesn't mean anything to the unbeliever. It doesn't mean anything to anybody else because I'm not practicing what I preach, right? You've heard that before. But this doesn't just apply to me standing up here in the pulpit. It applies to all of us as Christians. We can't just simply attest that this is the word of God. Uh, we have to live it. We have to joyfully obey it and follow it. Can I get an amen? We have to obey it. And if we fail to do that, you know, that's the biggest attack against the church. Think about it. They say we say one thing and we do another. And that cannot be the case for us this morning. So, in closing, I really want to kind of wrap up the question of can I trust Scripture? Uh, with this. And it's, what is the point? What is the point? I told you earlier that in the Bible is the greatest story of all time, God's story. It tells us of creation. It tells us of the fall. It tells us of redemption and of restoration. And our aim as a church, our aim as Christians, is just to clearly communicate to a broken and dying world that God loves you. And that He loved you so much that His Son entered this creation and paid a penalty for what you deserve. And He died on a cross. And that His death was accepted as a sacrifice for you and for me. That's the point. That's what God wants you to know. Last week, Dustin kind of touched on God knowing all things, right? And there's an illustration I've, I've historically used. I'll use it this morning. You can choose to pick it apart if you want. But for me, it's true and it works. See, for me, if God knows all things and we have free will, that means that before He chose to create all things, He knew what we would do. He knew that we would deny Him. He knew that we would rebel against Him. And I can only imagine that in God knowing this, that He had to ponder on how the problem would be fixed. And I just like to imagine said, so you won't find this in Scripture, but I, just, I think it works just for an analogy this morning. I imagine he looked at his son, Jesus, and he said, you know what we have to do? And Jesus says, yeah, I know, Father. God knew before he created us. He had to. If he knows all things, he knew the price that his son would have to pay. And what did he do next? He created us anyways. You know, what other definition of love do we need as human beings? 
I can't think of a greater one. Scripture says that greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus came down here and died for us all. That if we would put our faith in him, we would find salvation. This big problem, all these difficult things in this world, all these doubts and, and reservations we have are all answered by God's word. And everything we can't seem to figure out is all resolved by Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to have an altar call before I close us in prayer. And I want you to, if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, I hope you heard what I just said. God loves you. He loves you. Are you broken? It's like, like Dustin said last week, he was broken. Are you chained? Are you shackled? He's a chain breaker. Are you lost? Do you not know your way? You've heard it sung before. He's a way maker. Jesus Christ is the answer to whatever problem you're going through. He's not asking you to fix yourself. He's not asking you to figure it out and, and have a plan before you come to Him. He's just telling you to come. Follow me is what He said. Follow me. So the point of God's direct communication to us through His Word is that we would be restored. That we would put our faith in His Son so we could be called children of God. That's it. That's the answer to life. That's what I'm going with. Jesus, what are you going with this morning? If you're a pastor here, I'd ask you to please join us up front for the altar call. And I'm going to go ahead and pray us out and we'll have a time for response. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we know what Your Word says about creation. And Lord, we know what it says about the fall. We know, God, that we rebelled against You. And that sin has corrupted us and corrupted this world. We know that we are sinners by nature. It's in our DNA. And Lord, we know that we are sinners by choice. We choose to rebel against you. And God, that could have been the end of it. You could have wiped it clean and gave up on the human race. But you didn't do that, Lord. You're patient with us. You demonstrated your love when your son came and died for our sins. And because of that, because of You, Lord, and because of what Jesus did, we have hope this morning. We do not have to subscribe to some false ideology that all of this is just random chance. That the universe just popped into existence. That nothing we do is that matters. Nothing, All this pain and all this suffering has no reason. You're just unlucky. We know this isn't true this morning, Lord, because Jesus said Your Word is truth. And Your Word says there's a way out of this mess. Your Word speaks of restoration. Your Word speaks of healing this morning, Lord. And so we're just asking that if anyone here this morning has never put their faith in You, Lord, we pray that they would feel the touch of Your Holy Spirit working in their heart. At the end of the day, I can tell them, Lord, that Your Word is inspired. I can tell them that Your Word is truthful, that it is inerrant. I can tell them that it has a divine authority. But if Your Holy Spirit, Lord, isn't moving in their heart, if it's not convicting them of their sin and, and turning that hardened heart into a heart of flesh, Lord, nothing we say matters. Your Word says that nobody comes to Jesus unless You're leading them, Lord. And so I pray this morning that You're leading them. I pray that You're convicting them to come to You, to lay down their burdens, to lay down their life, to be changed now and forever. 
Lord, for the Christian here who's taken a step backwards. Maybe they've taken more than a step. Maybe they've completely turned around. God, I pray this morning that you would restore that individual. I pray, Lord, that you would drive them to their knees at the foot of the cross. Show them that while they may have ran miles away, the minute they turn around, you're standing face to face with them, that you've never left them, that you love them, that you care for them, that you desire for them to come back to you like the prodigal son. Lord, you are worthy of all honor and all praise. You deserve the glory. This morning we will worship you. We ask you to hear our prayers. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at the Impact Church Podcast. For this and other messages, visit us online at impactharlem.org. In the meantime, you can subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it on iTunes, and share it with your friends on social media. Once again, thanks for joining us at the Impact Church Podcast.